Thank you very much indeed. Um, if you do have a Bible to hand, it might be handy to uh, keep that with you because we're going to uh, settle on a couple of those uh, bits that uh, Deepak has read for us. I'm so looking forward to this sermon. There's so, there's so much to cover. We're, we're trying to cover Revelation 12, 13, and 14. We've sort of chosen a, a couple of uh, the kind of highlights of that, but we're going to be uh, trying to cover all three chapters. So there's going to be a sense of speed about all of this, uh, but also trying to give an overview. But a question as we begin, I, I wonder what you feel are the, are the virtues or the gifts or the skills that you need to keep going? Uh, to keep going as a Christian, and since to keep going as a human being living in the world uh, that we live. What are the things that you need uh, to keep you going? Uh, we, we hear uh, John's take uh, on this question, and we hear it in Revelation uh, 13, uh, right at the end of the chapter. And if Revelation 13 was, was televised, man, it would make great telly, uh, wouldn't it? Maybe it needs to be sort of a, something animated. But this would be the moment when John, who as Claire described, is, is the seer who comes onto the stage and, and talks about what's going on in the world. This, this is that moment where he looks directly at the camera which we've seen more and more of in recent years, when in a drama, if something really important is to be said, something that connects the person that's speaking to the audience, that person will turn to camera and will say something. And it really commands our attention when we do so. And we hear that in John, in Revelation 13. Having described all of this stuff, the beasts, the dragons, everything else, John stops and he says, as he looks directly at the camera, he says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. And Revelation 12, 13, and 14 is going to underline why we need to be patiently enduring and faithful and how we can cultivate those virtues. So this is going to be really speedy. I would definitely recommend going back home and reading all of Revelation 12, 13, and 14. We're going to have dragons. We're going to have multi-headed beasts. We're going to have a whole zoo of animals. We're going to have a new word to almost everybody here. And we're going to be looking at a subset of arithmetic called Revelation Maths, all in the next 17 minutes. So are you ready? Uh, you need to buckle up, uh, and here we go. In Revelation 12 and 13, we meet, essentially, four versions of the same story. And it's our story, and it's his story. Uh, some of the characters change, as does the viewpoint of the storyteller, but each version is reminding us uh, that uh, as Christians, we are caught up in this huge drama that will require every drop of patient endurance and faithfulness that we can summon. And we're going to focus on the first, the one that Deepak read for us in Revelation 12. But each of these stories is like a, a widescreen, big picture retelling of the history of our world. But it's, it's, it says, like all stories, it's got a focus. And the focus is the here and now. And it's, the focus is we're past Jesus dying and rising from the dead and ascending. And we're waiting for Jesus to come again or for us to die. And so it's concentrating on this in-between time, in between those two huge events. Now, as always, especially with Revelation, knowing our Old Testament will really help. The first part of Revelation is, of course, a nightmare. 
if you actually stop and step back and are detached about it, it, it is literally, literally like something from a horror film. You have a pregnant woman who's racked with labor pains. She's being chased by a seven-headed, ten-horned red dragon, which is desperately trying to devour her child. She gives birth. The child is snatched into safety. She is cared for in the desert for a very precise 1,260 days. Now, what on earth is going on? Let's see if we can get into this. We have to think back to Israel's escape from Egypt. So, in Revelation 12, the bit that Deepak read for us, the woman, the pregnant woman who's trying to flee the dragon, she is Israel. She is God's people, and the clues are in her being adorned with the sun. Do you remember? She's adorned with the sun and the moon and 12 stars. So you have to think back to Joseph's dream, the dream that gets him into all of that trouble. Joseph, uh, so closely identified with Israel in the Old Testament. Israel, if you remember, in the Old Testament, is chased out of Egypt by a murderous and sadistic regime headed by Pharaoh. And that regime wants to wipe out the people of Israel. This regime, like the empires of Daniel's day, is pictured as a serpent or a dragon, like personified evil. But in the story, Israel has a child. And now people, we know who the child is, right? The clue is a male child who will rule all the nations. Okay, you got who that is, right? It's Jesus. Israel becomes, after the birth of Jesus, the church, the new Israel, the bearer of the new covenant. The church, in the story, is still in danger. So the church is pictured as this woman on the run, for a set period of time. That is why Christians, says John, need patient endurance and faithfulness. We're living in that time. We are like the woman who's on the run in the desert. Now, the next three chunks of Revelation are all variations on this theme, this colorful, dense, vivid summary of Bible time. So we see Michael and all his angels fighting and overcoming the dragon who is hurled to the earth and yet still pursues the woman. And in that picture, we see captured a Christian understanding of the times, this time that we live in, that we look back to the cross, evil completely defeated and confounded. And yet there's a kind of residual power that evil has in the world that is very real. And for any of us to deny that and say it's not happening would just be to be blind and blinkered uh, to what is going on. Uh, then we see a picture of a beast that emerges from the sea. This beast is blasphemous. This beast demands worship uh, and wages war against God's holy people. Then we see a beast from the earth uh, with all the authority of the first beast enslaving and corrupting the world. These are all the same big stories about this time that we live in now. It, to John's readers, it is imperial Rome with all of its pride and brutality and intolerance that is clearly in view, that is symbolized by the dragon and by those various beasts. We, we see clearly and we hear the vulnerability and the fear of the fledgling church running for their lives, hiding in the desert. Now, one of the great values of this being such vivid apocalyptic writing is that it stands the test of time. 
to remind us that Imperial Rome's descendants, other governments throughout history, are just as brutal and just as ready to usurp God's power, just as ready to claim for themselves what only can be given to God. Human power is so easily corrupted and so tempted to injustice and, and also to defiance. So part of our patient endurance and faithfulness is to stand up to that power. It was really interesting in, in the second and the third stories, we see the dragon, the serpent, which is so, uh, so often in scripture, the symbol of the devil, of the Satan, of the accuser. We see how the dragon's authority is given to the beast. And the beast here represents the power and the brutality of Rome. And so John's listeners are reminded that part of their duty will be to stand up to the power of government, uh, to discern when the state is functioning under divine authority and when the state is stealing God's authority in defiance. Of course, that is a work of discernment. Uh, Paul, writing in Romans 13, acknowledges that the, the, the authority of the state is God-given and that most of the time we should give our allegiance willingly to the state. But there are times when the state, driven by uh, the, the evil in our world, takes on for itself more than it deserves and more than it can handle. Now let's focus for a second on the 360 million Christians for whom Re Revelation 12, 13 and 14 is not just an interesting sermon, but it's a daily lived reality. One in seven Christians in the world have this experience. Think about Qatar, for instance, reading itself for the World Cup in December. Qatar is ranked as the 18th most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. Most Christians there are migrant workers. They are allowed very limited freedom to worship and to share their faith. But if you are a Qatari, it's completely different. Uh, the state says you are not allowed to become a Christian or in fact to change your faith uh, to any other worldview. Uh, if you're a, a woman and you become a Christian in Qatar, you will be placed under house arrest. If you're a man, most likely you will be imprisoned. The top 20 most dangerous countries in the world to be a Christian have different religious outlooks. Some of them are atheists, some of them are Muslim, some of them are Hindu. What is common to all is that there is a government that denies the power of God and wants it all for themselves, like the beasts in Revelation 12 and 13 who, who suck all power to themselves and who severely punish any who work against them. So our Qatari sisters and brothers are learning what it is to have patient endurance and are learning what it is to have faithfulness. They know what it's like to live in a society where faithfulness to Jesus and any Christian distinctive is just trying, is wrung out of them through fear and through coercion. And John, writing to them, as well as to us, says, friends, you need patient endurance and you need faithfulness. What a beautiful uh, combination. Enduring, suffering, but in our enduring, remaining true. True to the Lamb. 
but also true to our calling to be people of compassion and grace and mercy. Our Qatari sisters and brothers need to know that the time of their suffering and humiliation will come to an end. They're here. Jesus' death and resurrection is here. Jesus coming again is here. They're here. They need to know that there is a finite time that they will suffer. And they need to know that Jesus will carry the scars of his humiliation and his suffering for all time in heaven. We will know him as the lamb who was slain. And now for a short interlude. This is about mass. Please do not adjust your sets. This stuff is really interesting. Numbers are really important in Revelation and they are part of its rich symbolic tapestry. Of course we live in a very literal culture and every time we see a number we think it probably is a number but often in Revelation if you see a number it's a symbol. It's talking about something. So square numbers in Revelation are good They're good numbers. They're about God and about his people. The people in heaven, when you read Revelation, are either a vast throng beyond all counting or they're a seemingly very precise number, 144,000. Now, 144, the the, the root of that, mathematically speaking, is 12 by 12, makes 144. The 12 tribes of Israel, but now made up of every tribe and every people. If if you've come across Jehovah's Witnesses in the past, this has caused them innumerable problems because they take that number seriously and literally. And they think only 144,000 people are going to get in to the top seats in heaven. It's, It's not a literal number. It's a beautiful symbolic number to describe wholeness and to describe multiracial beauty. All the people of the earth brought together. Rectangular numbers in Revelation, like 1,260 days, are all about this time that we live in, this overlap, this not yet time in which we live. Uh, 1,260 days is three and a half years, which is half of seven. Uh, So when you hear that number, three and a half years or 1,260 days, it's about this incomplete time in which we live, this now but not yet, where we we know God, but we don't know him fully as we're going to know him in the future. Now, triangular numbers are all about opposition uh, to God. Uh, To picture a triangular number, you need to be thinking about setting up the balls on a snooker table where you have, uh, we get the little triangle out and you get one, then two, then three. If you had a really, really big snooker table or really, really small balls, if you got 36 lines, one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way down to 36, you would have 666 balls. So it can be pictured, 666 can be pictured as a triangular number. Now, the most important thing to know about 666 is that it is incomplete. It's slightly off-key. And it's off-key because it's not another number. It's not 777. Seven in the Bible is the number of perfection, the number of completeness. In Hebrew, the word for Sunday and the word for seven is the same word, Shabbat. At the day God rested. So seven is the number of perfection. So six, and especially six, six, and six altogether, are, are representative of something that is not quite right. 
It's slightly off-key. It's missing in, in very important ways. And at the end of Revelation 13, we see, uh, in a sense, evil personified in this number 666. It's called the number of the beast, uh, just as the number of worshippers is 144,000. Now, over time, let me list just a few of the people who have been identified as 666, uh, the beast. In no particular order, we have the United Nations, some but not all U.S. presidents, the European Union, barcodes, Martin Luther, quite a few popes, Napoleon, and contactless debit cards. So all of those have been identified uh, by some Christians as being 666, the number of the beast. And this has given birth to today's new word for you to drop into polite conversation over supper. Uh, and this is the new word. Uh, it's quite long, so get ready for it. Uh, this new word describes the fear of the number 666. And the word is hexakoisi, hexaconta hexaphobia. So you can just... Just casually drop that into conversation uh, next day or two. I'll, I can write it down for you afterwards. And that's the fear of the number 666. Because, of course, Christians have been, have been driven to all kinds of awesome conclusions about what that number uh, really means. You can make a cause that John did have one particular individual in mind, the Emperor Nero. And to do that, you have to take the Greek words, transliterate those into Hebrew, then give each one of those Hebrew letters a numerical value and you will get to Emperor Nero and that, and that could be because he was using code you know it's the underground church and he didn't want to name Nero publicly in a letter for fear of getting himself into trouble or it could just be uh, that uh, it's part of the multicolored symbolism of Revelation's apocalyptic world, that as well as all of these beasts and dragons and horns and everything else, we have numbers to uh, represent and symbolize different things. And 666 represents human power taking more than it deserves and more than it can handle. At the heart of this passage, sisters and brothers, is John's direct words to camera. Remember, this calls for the patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Why? Because we are still a people in the wilderness. We're still scattered amongst all of the tribes and the peoples and the nations, with human empires thirsty to stand against the people of Jesus and the compassion and the justice we bring. That is part of our continuing reality. Of course, we have to pause and say, here in the UK, uh, whatever we might think about some of the shenanigans that we've seen, we do broadly live in a country where we can uh, live out our faith freely and gratefully, and we are thankful for that. The question then becomes how? How do we learn patient endurance and faithfulness? Many ways. But one of the really important ones is through worship. Worship of all kinds is really, really important. Scattered as we are in the world, we're also able to draw together and to peek into the throne room of heaven. And our worship now in all of its forms, whether it's corporate, whether it's just us walking along the towpath one day, is both wholehearted and real, but it's also anticipatory. Because we know that one day... We will worship in the 
end time, uh, when we are fully with God, uh, when we're in that great throng of people. And in chapter 12, we hear a song of praise that rejoices in the victory of the Lamb on the cross, rejoices in our hope, rejoices in the way that the Holy Spirit inspires others, mourns at the evil in our world, but rejoices that the evil will not win the day, that in this in-between time in which we live, as we look back to the wonder and the beauty and the power of the cross, we know that evil is undone. However much that beast or that dragon in all of its forms causes chaos and mayhem. And in Revelation 14 that Deepak read, we're back with the vast throng, this symbolic fulfillment of all of the tribes of the earth. And it turns out that the worship of heaven is multi-sensory. It's noisy. There are harps, there are rushing waters, there's thunder. But most importantly, we're singing the new song that is an ancient song. We're singing the song of Moses. We're singing the song of the Lamb. And in one sense, that is the essence, isn't it, of Christian worship. Of that it's, all, it's always about singing a new song. Because a new song implies that we, are, we have fresh, lived experience about what it means to say, I love God. What it means to say, Jesus took away my sin. What it means to say, Jesus is transforming me. So we're not, we're not just, we're not using experiences from 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago. It's a fresh lived experience that erupts in us as a new song. And yet so often, like John, we're using old words, old pictures, old images to describe what God is still doing in our lives. And it's something that we do looking forward in anticipation to that great day. So go back home, read Revelation 12, 13, 14, drop that word politely in conversation, and work out what it means to have patient endurance and to have faithfulness in a world that will always be seeking to squeeze Christian people out of the picture. Amen.